Come, Holy Spirit, fill us with your love so that we might be open to what you would have us here this day. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts glorify you, O God, our shield and our salvation. Amen. Before I get started this morning, I want to give Joe, I want to thank Joe the, uh, for giving me the opportunity to preach today. Uh, one of the many, many gifts she has in ministry is for shepherding new pastors as they begin their ministry. And so I know I'm not alone in saying that if it were not for her, I wouldn't be the minister or pastor that I am today. I also have to say that despite my seminary education and my work over the past couple of years as a minister and chaplain, I have preached only a handful of times. So while I'm grateful for the chance to preach this morning, and I'm always happy to help lead worship here at New Church, I recognize, I recognize that preaching is a gift and skill I simply haven't had a lot of time to nurture. So I'm thankful for all of you then for abiding with me through this morning and hopefully what will be a faithful and painless sermon. I say painless because the only other time I have actually preached in front of a congregation that was not made up of seminary students or at the funeral for someone I was a chaplain for happened over 10 years ago. I was a, uh, I literally been in seminary for less than nine months and a pastor uh, who was trying his best to mentor me and support me asked me to preach one Sunday while he was away. Looking back, I should have said no and I certainly had no idea of what I was doing. The congregation was very welcoming though, and at the end of the sermon, or at the end of the service, an, an older gentleman came up to me and uh, was trying to say something kind and encouraging. Well, we said, at least it was quick, I like a short sermon. <laughs> In some ways, I guess, you could say it's taken me 12 years to get back into the pulpit after that. Given my anxieties about preaching today, especially in front of my home congregation, I wonder if I could have chosen an easier or a different text to preach from. As Joe read the gospel lesson this morning, some of you would be forgiven for thinking this was the same text we, read, we heard last week. It's an easy mistake to make, because both this week and last week we heard scriptures that describe Jesus appearing to the disciples after his resurrection in a locked room. Last week, our Gospel reading came from the Gospel of John and was the story of Doubting Thomas. And in that scripture lesson, hiding from those who had persecuted and just executed Jesus, the risen Christ appears to the disciples, shows them the wounds in his hands and his side, and is finally recognized as the resurrected Christ. Thomas, of course, misses this appearance and so doesn't believe what the others tell him. So a few days later, Jesus appears again in the same manner, and this time, Thomas is there. In our reading from the Gospel of Luke today, the scene is very similar, especially if we already have this version of events from John in our mind. Again, the disciples are together, locked in a room, frightened and worried about being found by the same people who had just put Jesus to death. Also, just like in John, Jesus makes the point here of showing the disciples the wounds in his hands and his feet. But here, all the disciples, not just Thomas, 
express amazement and disbelief at what they are seeing. So if both last week's and this week's texts are so similar, and Joe, as always, did a fantastic job of preaching last week, then I haven't done myself a favor by going back to the same kind of story. What can I say about today's gospel that Joe didn't say last week? Are Luke and John telling us something different or the same thing? What are we supposed to take away from this week's lesson that we weren't from last week's? And to top it off, why did the biblical scholars and theologians that construct the lectionary, the list of texts that we read each Sunday, why did they put these similar texts on back-to-back -back weeks? Well, I think in short, my task this morning is to think about our lesson from at least two perspectives. The first, what does our reading have to tell us in light of what we heard last week from the Gospel of John? How does last week's scripture and Joe's sermon lead us to today's scripture and my sermon? And the second thing is to examine just the text that we have in front of us this morning, the Gospel of Luke, as the writer intended. Luke's original audience would not have had the Gospel of John yet, and they certainly had. So, what was this story meant to say to them? And from either of those ways of looking at today's text, it's about witnessing what is right in front of our face. Particularly as both Christians who take scripture and faith seriously, but not always literally, we have a hard time doing that. I know I can't. I sometimes get lost looking for the deeper message than the Easter message standing right in front of me. So what is the message of these two gospel accounts? We talked last week about how we were talking about the details of the resurrection. We were told to leave without seeing, without being able to explain step by step what happened Easter. And all that's true. We ask that without a precedent that has no logical or scientific explanation, that can verify or prove that this is a physical threat of the realness of just his hopes, on tangible and very palpable fear of this house hiding from their lives. But while we were asked to believe without seeing, we also pointed to the importance of the physical world, of the realness of the risen Christ in our world. It seems to me that there are times, maybe when we are frightened or hurting or doubting, that we need to think about the physicality in these two stories from Luke and John. I mean, did you notice how much of today's reading from Luke focuses on Jesus' physical body and the fact that he was really, truly right there? Are the disciples seeing a ghost? Luke asks. He puts the words in the mouths of the disciples, but surely anybody reading or hearing this story for the first time would have had the same question. Luke gives us the answer. Jesus was not the disembodied spirit of a dead man, but the physical, literal body of a living person. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have, Jesus says. I am really physically here. Okay, Luke seems to say, but maybe he's not fully alive. Can he eat? Does he hurt? According to Luke, this is why Jesus asks the disciples for food and then eats the fish right there in front of them. Again, to prove that he is fully alive and right there. 
I am, Jesus says, really physically, right here. So then which is it? Is this reading about a literal physical resurrection, or should we go deeper into something we can't see or believe or know for sure? Are we supposed to believe without seeing? Go beneath the surface like the Gospel of John story encourage us, encourages us to do? Or are we supposed to celebrate this very concrete resurrection that Luke, Luke describes? And like Thomas, should we want to touch Christ's wounds? Is it about a physical resurrection or not? Well, I think it's about both. I think that's why these two lessons are on back-to-back -back weeks. While last week's lesson from John is telling us to go beyond what we can and cannot prove and what we can fully and not fully understand, Luke is saying that we shouldn't, that we can't neglect the physical world. Jesus really did die. His earthly body stopped breathing. His flesh began to break down and decay. And yet, here he is, eating, moving about, breathing in front of the disciples. Fred Craddock, who is one of the most well-known biblical scholars, theologians, and professors of the late last century, writes that Luke is focusing on physicality for a couple of reasons. First, Luke wants his readers to really think about the new thing God had done in Jesus' life, death, and the resurrection. You see, neither the old understanding of a spiritual-only underworld from the Roman and Greek world, nor the ancient Jewish belief of an afterlife of immortality through one's own descendants capture the radicalness of what God has done in this resurrection. Luke's gospel today tells us that resurrection, in other words, means nothing is the same as it was before. That God has changed all the rules. Spirituality and physicality are no longer separate. Life and death no longer exist like they did before. The clear lines, the black and white thinking that had defined human life before were wiped away. Jesus, both the dead man on the cross and the resurrected man talking and eating with his disciples has created a new reality, a new paradigm, a new way of being with God and of God's being with us. The second reason, Fred Craddock writes, that Luke focuses on the physical reality of the resurrected Jesus is to stress to us that the historical person Jesus, who was killed, is the same person who stands before the disciples in our reading today. There were not and are not two Jesuses, one human Jesus of Nazareth before death and one cosmic Jesus Christ 
after Easter. They are one and the same. And that changes what the resurrection means for us. Craddock writes, If the Jesus who dies belongs to the historical past, but the one disciples now follow is the eternal Christ, then the Christian life can take on forms of spirituality that are without suffering for others, without a cross, without any engagement of life in this world. With the few sentences Luke has about wounds on a body, food in a stomach, and flesh and bone in the world, Luke reminds us that Christianity, the message of the risen Christ, does not, cannot ignore the pain of other bodies, physical hunger, or physical oppression. While John reminded us last week to go deeper and take a look at why and how we believe and trust in God, Luke reminds us that we must also do Christ's work here and now. That the resurrection is now. The work of binding up the broken and wounded, feeding the hungry, visiting the sick and imprisoned remains just as important now, after the resurrection, as they did when Jesus did these things before his death. In fact, the resurrection reaffirms that how we treat this physical world should be how we would treat the body of the risen Christ. The work Jesus did in his own life, with his body, remains the work of the body of Christ now, the church, after resurrection. You see, resurrection doesn't get us off the hook for things we do in this life. It makes those things all the more important. Neither the Gospel of Luke nor the Gospel of John can offer any explanation that would satisfy our modern scientific minds on how this resurrection thing really happened, spiritually or physically. But both Gospels do tell us that if we trust that it happened, if we have experienced the risen Christ in our own lives, then the ramifications of that are powerful for our faith here and now. And there's one more thing. Given all of the talk on the actual body of Jesus and the importance of the here and now, how do we know that this story still applies to us? How do we know it doesn't just apply to those disciples who were actually locked in the room with Jesus? Well, I think it's because today's lesson comes at the end of the Gospel of Luke. In fact, there are only five verses left after what we read today, which are the ascension of Jesus into the clouds. And so the last thing that Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke is that you are witnesses to these things. We are witnesses to Christ's resurrection, to Christ's teaching to the forgiveness of sins, to all of the understanding of Scripture. We are witnesses. And I can say this confidently because the writer of the Gospel of Luke doesn't stop there with the end of the Gospel. He or she goes on to write the book Acts of the Apostles, which tells the story of the establishment of the early church. 
So you see, we are the inheritors, Luke and Acts tells us, of the first disciples in a locked room. We are the witnesses of what they have done, just as they were the witnesses of what God has done in the resurrection. So here again, the physicality of the word witness is important. Just like in English, Greek, the language the New Testament was written in, has a lot of words that mean to see, to watch, to view, to behold. But the one used here, translated as witness, is martyros. Martyros means not only to see, but to tell and share with others. To take what one has seen and push it out into the world for others to see. Materos is where we get the word for martyr. Those early Christians who lost their lives, claiming the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. We are not just watchers, not just bystanders, not just an audience for the resurrection. We are witnesses. Our believing, our telling, our sharing help make the resurrection manifest in the world today. While the resurrection of Christ was a one-time event, resurrection happens over and over and over again through the church, through the act of our breaking bread together, through each of our actions. Joe has challenged us over this Easter season to see the resurrection in our own lives. And when we do that, when we witness the resurrection now, we continue to breathe life into the power of Christ's resurrection. You see, when we see the emotional and literal wounds on the bodies of black and colored people from hundreds of years of racism and police brutality, and when we petition and organize and march to make changes to those racist systems, we participate in the spirit of Christ's resurrection. When we witness to the spiritual hunger and all too often the physical hunger of LGBTQ kids on the street and welcome them not only into our churches but into our kitchens as well, we participate in the spirit of Christ's resurrection. When we take notice of the invisibility of those who are sick or disabled or shut in from the outside world and we make our services available online, reach out with phone calls or visits and remind them that not only God sees them but we see them too, we participate in the spirit of Christ's resurrection. When we behold the beauty of the natural world and the suffering of all kinds of plant and animal life because of the greedy actions of people, and when we pick up trash, lobby for better environmental policies, urge our leaders and corporations to take on global warming, we participate in the spirit of Christ's resurrection. And when a small church less than 10 years old that's had four or five homes in the last few years has to stop in-person worship services due to a global pandemic, and when that church continues to find ways of doing ministry, of being the church without meeting at church, and when that church continues to thrive, we participate in the spirit of Christ's resurrection. We are not bystanders in this resurrection thing. We are witnesses. We are co-creators of God's continuing work in this world. 
God is still speaking. God is still resurrecting. God is still urging us to witness God's life-giving love here and now in this messy physical world. We are witnesses to these things. We are workers in these things. We are disciples in these things. And because of Easter, we are never alone, and we need never fear. We rise up with Christ together. Amen.